hopefully you all are feeling refreshed after an extra hour of sleep. You know, uh, one of the ushers said to me, you know, it still doesn't matter. Uh, everyone is still late. Uh, and they were right. Of course, what I made it super awkward today is that everyone was uh, sitting down, and so it was very obvious that you were late. I kind of liked that part, right? You couldn't just sneak in. We got to see you. Uh, so, but it is good to be here with you uh, this morning. And we are, of course, continuing our look at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and today we are looking, um, we are now in the second part of the, of, of the fourth chapter of Luke, which is verses 14 through 30. And so let's read as Luke writes this. Let's just take that off because I just want us to hear it because it's a different version. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off of the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray this morning that you would speak through this peculiar text. 
enlighten us that we might see you, that we might even be willing to be offended by you. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Last week, we talked about the three temptations. There is Jesus, and he's been in the wilderness, and Satan tempted him again and again and again. And yet, Jesus was strong, continuing to reside, continuing to reveal how there is the kingdom of God, and there is the kingdom of the world. And the Spirit was with him, and the Spirit continues to be with him. And it seems that after being in the wilderness, Jesus went out to Capernaum. And he began to teach there, and what he was saying was really resonating with the people of Capernaum. People were talking about his teachings. They were impressed by them. And so finally then, Jesus turns his eyes to Nazareth to go to his hometown. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this would have been like for Jesus to have returned to his hometown. If I were to ask you, uh, when I say hometown and your hometown, what emotions are evoked? For some of you, you might get a distant look in your eyes and all of a sudden the nostalgia of that, the little ice cream shop you used to love to go to, the friends that you had, all of the memories, the traditions... Whereas others of you, when you think about your hometown, you would just simply recall that as soon as you turned 18, you wiped the dust off your sandal, you left, and you never looked back. When I think about my own hometown, and I would kind of, uh, typically I would say it would be Pensacola, Florida, that's where I spent the most time growing up. I do not look at Pensacola, Florida glowingly at all. I, I'm always impressed, though, or amazed when I see some of my high school friends who they go on Facebook and just talk about, oh, Pensacola, it's the greatest. And I just think, is this the same place? Because I just really didn't like it very much. But all that said, whenever I go back home to visit my mom, who continues to live in Pensacola, I have to admit that there is still something incredibly unique about one's hometown. I mean, this is where you have so many firsts. It's where you begin to mature. It's also where you make those first big mistakes. It's where you have your first joys and your first successes and your first failures and your first great sadness. All of that, when it comes to your hometown, is woven into the very fabric of who you are. So even if you don't like your hometown, here is the truth. You can never completely separate yourself from it. And so as Jesus looks to Nazareth and begins to get closer to Nazareth, what would he have been feeling or thinking? We don't know, but the odds are quite good that if nothing else, he knows Nazareth better than any other town. And that Nazareth and the people within Nazareth know him better than any other place. And so he arrives at the synagogue on that day and he unrolls the scroll and there is Isaiah. And all the eyes, everyone is looking to this hometown boy. 
Jesus begins to read from this famous text. It's a huge text for the Israelites, for the Jewish people. It's a sign that it's a prophecy that says when this happens, then your exile is over. When this happened, then God's kingdom has finally come. And so he begins to read this well-known passage. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and he sat back down. And I love the description of this, which is that all the eyes were fastened on Jesus. In other words, it's not even like, you know, they just wanted to look at him. It was as if they had no choice. They were fastened to him. They were so immersed in this person who had just read this passage. I hope that you can feel kind of the air, if you will, of expectancy and wonder what's going to happen next. And then Jesus says to them, today, to Today, today, he only says it once, but just for dramatic effect, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you get this today, this prophecy that they have been waiting for, the prophecy that their parents have been waiting for, the prophecy that their parents' parents have been waiting for, the prophecy that their parents' parents' parents have been waiting for, the prophecy that the parents' 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 parents have been waiting for? For centuries, I could keep going. And Jesus looks at them and he says, when? See, I should have said it four times. He says, when? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you even imagine what it would have felt like? And how did they respond? Well, they spoke well of him. They were amazed. They asked, isn't this Jesus's, or excuse me, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, for a long time, whenever I heard that, I think I'd been told this, that that was probably dismissive. Like, wait, who does he think he is? Isn't this just Joseph's son? We know Joe. This is just his boy. No big deal. But, but the longer you look at this and you kind of see it in context, they liked him. And so it seems more of like there's this moment of, of excitement. Wow, this is Joseph's son. And listen to him. And in one sense, of course, this is a great day. Hometown boy made good. I mean, think about it. If you went home, I thought about this. If I were to go home and some church were to ask me to preach and, and then I preached and they thought well of me and they said that my words were amazing and they asked, isn't this Beth Deck's son? I can assure you, first of all, Beth Deck would have been there and she would have popped up and been like, you know it is. That's my boy. I love him. It would have been a great, great moment, to be sure. I mean, they like Jesus. They really, really like him. And in a sense, that's wonderful. But the problem is, is that they seem to just really like him. But they didn't seem to actually be very disrupted by him. 
They liked his words. It just doesn't seem that they actually thought that these were words of change at all. I love the way commentator Keith Nichol, when he looks at this, he says, you know, it's kind of like they're sitting there and they're like, isn't that nice how well he reads Hebrew? His voice is pleasant. Oh, yes, it carries so well. Such a fine young man, old Joseph's boy. He knows such big words and he speaks so well, even without notes. Being amazed, Nichols says, is not enough because it can actually hinder you from hearing what Jesus is really saying. You see, they spoke well of him. They were amazed, but it seems that Jesus doesn't actually give two hoots about that. He doesn't care if they speak well of him. He doesn't care if they are amazed by his words. What he wants them to be is changed by them. What he wants them to focus on is not so much the shape of his words, but how he is coming to reshape their world. And it seems that they have been distracted and that they have missed the point. You see, the truth, of course, is, is that Jesus coming to earth and saying something like God's kingdom is coming today, it should actually rattle us, a bit like the shepherds were rattled on that Christmas Day evening when the angels came to tell them that the Lord had been born, Emmanuel had been born. You see, it should actually rattle us. I mean, we think, wow, they should have been doing more than just saying, well, isn't that nice? That's lovely. That they should have been like, holy cow, we've been waiting for this. This is today. It is very easy for us to cast stones, and yet at the same time, time. One begins to wonder if after worship, where we proclaim the fact that Jesus has come to earth for us and for our brokenness, where Jesus, who is God himself in the flesh, fully God, fully human, has come and was died and resurrected for us, when we sing praises to this and we think, oh my goodness, can you believe this is true? And then we walk out and we say things like, well, I feel like the choir sounded really great today. She's a really good prayer, don't you think? Pastor, your sermon was nice. It was really nice. Or I look at myself. Here I am all week immersed in prayer and the scripture trying to come up with a, you know, a sermon and thinking about the glory of God and all that he's done in my life and in the life of the people and the difference that makes, the radical difference it makes. And I, I preach that sermon not once but twice. And, and then I go out and I go into my office and I think to myself, whew. They liked it. Now I can go to El Rodeo with no, no worries. <laughs> and I think to myself, surely Jesus is looking at us and saying, what? Have you missed the point? Now please hear me. Liking the choir is great. Having a good prayer is great. A nice sermon is fine. All those things are okay. Please hear me. But if that's all that we get, then the truth is, perhaps like a hometown crowd, we have grown far too comfortable with the message and the messenger. And we have begun to only ask, does this sound good to us? And we have not begun to ask, how should this change us? If God's kingdom has come today, should not that then rattle us in some way? We become focused on the shape of words and not on the way that Jesus longs to reshape our world. But Jesus, 
Jesus wasn't going to let this go. Again, one of the great things about going through a whole gospel like we're doing right now is that hopefully we can remember some of the other things that we've been talking about. And we, you know, a few weeks ago, we looked at Simeon. Remember Simeon and the eight-year-old, uh, or eight-year-old, eight-day-old baby Jesus, and, and everything's great. He gives this blessing, and then he looks to Mary. Do you remember this? And he says, this child will cause the rise and the fall of many in Israel, and he will reveal their inner thoughts. Remember how nerve-wracking it is to think about having your inner thoughts revealed? And so that's exactly what Jesus does right here. I don't know how he knows their inner thoughts. Maybe it's because this is his hometown. Maybe he heard the little whispers about how amazed they were by the words. Or maybe it was the spirit. I don't know. But what I know is that he heard their inner thoughts and he was not content to let it go. And so he let it rip. You want to tell me the proverb, physician, heal yourself? Please do for us all the great things you did in Capernaum. Remember this, a home, a home or a prophet is never welcomed in his hometown. And then he goes on to talk about Elijah and, and the widow of Zarephath. And, and he goes on to talk about Elisha, Naaman, the Syrian. These two who were both Gentiles. And he says, remember this. God, there were lots of needs in the Israelites. But then God sent two people and worked through them. And after he said those things, in that moment, they were all infuriated. In that moment, you know what they wanted to do? They, well, they did. They drove him out up the cliff. And if it weren't for some kind of miracle, who knows how, they would have been thrown to his death. Everything changed in that moment. What a whiplash. What in the world just happened? They went from the one hand going out and shaking his hand and saying, great job today, really nice, to wanting to take his hand and throw him off a cliff. He struck a nerve. Well, many have pointed out, and I would suggest probably rightfully so, that at least a part of their fury is this, is that simple fact that they had God in this beautiful box, which meant that God worked right here with the Israelites, with the Jewish people. This is who he worked for. He works with us. And all of a sudden, Jesus had the gall in the midst of this moment when they were eating out of his very hand to say, you know what? God is also going to work through many others, including Gentiles. And you cannot, you cannot put a box on the grace of the Almighty. And that seemed to be too much for them to handle. Well, what does that mean? Why would it bother people? Well, you know, Scott and Stan this week on their video, I would never say what they said, but here's what they said. They said, you know what? If you want to know a little bit about what it's like, what if it's kind of like, rather than singing God bless America, you began to sing God bless China? Would that unnerve you in some way? Would it begin to bother you? Scott S at zpc.org. Don't email me. <laughs> but the more I thought about that, the more I realized, you know, if someone were to ask me what makes people the maddest about a sermon that you've preached, it's pretty easy. One of probably the top two things that makes people really angry is if I were to ever talk about, as I have, a fear of, of our faith becoming too nationalistic. 
If I ever say something like, you know what, I don't think that actually America is special in God's eyes, that actually God's love and grace is for everyone, not just for America. There's, there's nothing particularly special. Still, Scott S. at zpc.org. Why? Now, please hear me. I'm going to say this. That doesn't mean that I do not believe that it is an incredible gift to have freedom of religion here, without question. Nor does it mean that I undermine anything that those who have gone before us have done to try to fight for these freedoms. But at the same time, we have to be completely honest, which is the simple fact that God loves the whole world. The truth, of course, is we want to be special, more special than others. And you know what? We're just not. But imagine if you were one of the Jewish people here. I mean, if anyone has the claim to be a special people, it would have been them. God went to Israel for them to be a light to all of the nations. And then here is Jesus in the midst of these people saying, no, 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 no. I'm actually going to go to these Gentiles over here instead. I'm going to actually go over here to this land, to this ethnic people. Well, now perhaps we at least get a little bit of a sense as to why they all of a sudden started getting angry. But I would also suggest it's not just that. I also think that a part of the reason why they got so angry is not just because God was going outside of the bounds that they had set up in their neat box, but it's because of the fact that Jesus said here, I'm not actually going to work with you guys. I can't do it. I cannot work through you all. See, Jesus seems to be suggesting here, and I don't know why, maybe because uh, that for some reason they seem to think that Jesus should definitely work for them, that they were almost owed it, right? That, hey, we're the special people, or, or this is the hometown, you know us, or, or, or perhaps because these were good kind of religious folk. They, they went to synagogue. They did all of these things that really God kind of owed them. How in the world could you go work someplace else and not work here with us? We're good, faithful people. I like what Tim Keller says about this. Tim Keller says, you know, these are our people who are not poor in spirit. They are middle class in spirit. I mean, let's be honest. These were really probably very good people. They were in synagogue exactly like we are today, you know, in a church. They, they, they were used to hearing scripture. They liked that. They, uh, they were used to someone expositing. They, they were used to hearing the promises of God and saying, well, this is for us. And now all of a sudden Jesus says, no, actually, I, I guess I can't work here. You see, here's the problem. They had lots of good things, but what they did not seem to be was poor in spirit. You see, someone who is poor in spirit does not assume that God owes them anything, does not assume that automatically just because of who I am or what I have done, therefore God should love me, that God almost owes me rather than being a sense of us owing God. And almost every time when you look at scripture in the gospels, when the people who get maddest are those who tend to be the most religious the ones who probably have done the most for God. And yet, 
Was it an amen? Or was it God saying, nope, that part's wrong. I don't know. You decide. But it was weird. (laughs) That no matter how many committees you've served on, no matter how much you give, no matter how good one might be, it is a hard and scary lesson for us to learn that when we are middle class in spirit, it means in many ways that we have begun to think that we can earn God's grace. We begin to feel as if we are in control, as if we can secure our own salvation. Let me tell you a little bit about how I think this might work. This may sound strange, and I may be the only person for whom this is the case. But when I hear about somebody who has a disease, this is typically someone who's two or three people removed from me. I don't know. Maybe they have a lung cancer or or maybe they had liver cancer or, 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 or perhaps they had a heart attack. One of the questions kind of buried in the different questions I ask, I want to know is this. If they have lung cancer, you know what I want to know? Do they smoke? They have liver cancer. I, I typically want to know whether they maybe they drink a little bit too much or is there something going on there? If they have a heart attack, did they, you know, not really in good shape maybe? Did they not eat real well? Especially for, if they're like around my age. I, I want to know that desperately. You want to know why I want to know that? Again, maybe I'm alone here. But the reason I want to know that is this. If it's true that they smoked or that maybe they drank a little too much, there's the cirrhosis, or, or maybe that they, you know, they just, they weren't in very good shape and they ate too much, then you know what? Then I'm still safe because I don't smoke. I don't drink all that much. I could eat better, but you know, I exercise. And as long as they fit into those boxes, you know what? I feel safe and I feel in control. I'm not going to die. I'm in control of this because I don't do those things. But here's, here's what begins to scare me. It's when the 48-year-old who has lung cancer never smoked or was a teetotaler, never drank. Or when they're an Adonis and they, you know, they, they do triathlons and they eat plant-based diets and they got the heart attack. When I hear about that, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this kind of facade of control that I have, this thing, this insurance that I thought made me safe, that no way could I die as a 48-year-old because of the fact that I don't do any of those things. All of a sudden, it's ripped away. And you know what? I begin to get anxious and I begin to get angry because it doesn't seem right. They don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it. Why would that happen? And all of a sudden, I realize I'm not nearly as in control as I would like. I'm not nearly as safe as I would have imagined. See, I think it's very similar when it comes to those of us who are middle class in spirit. I'm not suggesting that we want this to happen or that we try or that, that we don't know about grace. But what I would suggest is this, that the more work you do on behalf of the Lord... The more in danger, as strange as it sounds, that you begin to get further and further away from being poor of spirit. Again, what Keller points out is if you want to know if this is true or not, if you're a good middle class spiritual person, as soon as something goes wrong in your life, or as soon as a prayer isn't answered, do you look at God and think, seriously? I mean, look at all these things I do. You can't, you can't answer this prayer? I'll be honest. I think I've said this before. I love playing the pastor card. 
When things are not going my way or when there's a specific prayer that I really want and it's not happening, I am more than happy to say, seriously? I'm a professional follower of you. I mean, look at everything that I have done for you. Look at this. I'm going to end up getting emails about God bless China, not Scott. I've endured all of this. And you can't answer this prayer. And in that very moment, embarrassing as it may be, the reality is that I see my inner thoughts are revealed that I am not poor in spirit, but that I have become middle class in spirit, that I have begun to think if I do enough things, then I am ensuring myself to be in in good stead with the Almighty. I'm ensuring myself into the kingdom of God. And as we know, it cannot be grace plus anything. God does not owe us anything. It is out of his abundant grace that we have all that we have and that we are all that we are. But I'm going to be real honest, which is that for those of us here who have been successful in the world, it is a constant challenge, likely a challenge throughout your whole life, to not become middle class in spirit. Because it's what works. What works for us and and the world out there, what makes you successful is by all the hard work that you do. It's by putting in the hours. It's all those things that works. And it is so hard for us not to transpose that on the kingdom of God. And so we must be vigilant, intentional about making sure that we are always open to how should we be? How should we be poor in spirit? How are the ways, what are the ways that we're doing things to try to ensure us beyond just simply the grace of Christ? There's different ways that we can do this. I don't have time to go into all of them, so let me just mention three. One, I really think this is a part of the reason why the great banquet is so powerful and why so many have gone through it. I know people get tired of, uh, of, of hearing about it, but let me just say it this here. One of the great things about Great Banquet is it's 72 hours and it's, it's you. You know, we've been talking about this. Your spirituality is not just kind of your thoughts. It is your whole being. If you want to really grow in your spirituality, you need to be physically a part of it. Allow it to be a part of it. And this is 72 hours where you are physically a part of something, where you are stopping everything else you are doing in order to experience grace. And it is a remarkable experience of grace. Whether you are a guest, whether you're one of the part of the team that's working on it, it is this remarkable space to simply experience grace. Another thing that we can do, and it's a travesty and a tragedy that we have let this spiritual practice go, is the practice of Sabbath. Now, I'm going to talk about this some in the days ahead, but we as modern-day middle-class Christians have done a crud job of creating space for Sabbath. So that all we are are people who produce things. And I am here to tell you that when you are a person who is constantly producing, 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 it is impossible to not have a middle class spirit. Because it never creates space for you to stop and say, wait, 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 wait. All that I have and all that I am is not what I have done, but what God has done. But finally, and I realize this is somewhat repetitive because I talked about it a few weeks ago, 
but we must speak to it, which is that we have constantly, we have to be with the poor. Here, I'm not just talking about the poor in spirit. I am talking about the poor, the economically poor. Now listen, Philip Yancey makes this great point. He says, like, it's not like, it's not like at all that the poor are any more virtuous than anyone else. However, they are less likely to pretend that they are virtuous. And then he goes on to say this. He says, they have not the arrogance of the middle class who can skillfully disguise their problems under a facade of self-righteousness. They are more naturally dependent because they have no choice. They must depend on others simply to survive. I think it's not just a nice thing, but a necessary thing for us to be with the poor. Part of the reason why I love the fact that we're having this separate building that is still on our location when it comes to the food pantry, that it's still here, but it's very separate, is because that then most of you don't see all the cars that are lined up all week or during the, during the week, I should say, when people come to get food. But this way, it's very clear. That's right. There are those in our midst who need to have food, and what the food that we give them is a gift, which should, if we are paying attention, remind us of the fact that actually the food that we have is a gift. Who have you created your vegetables or fruit? Not even the farmers. All of these things have come from the Almighty, which means that all that we have comes from God. The reason why we want to continue to press in in our work down at Crooked Creek area is because Jesus says that if you want to try to find him, find the poor. And Jesus will show up there with more clarity. And when he does, not only will you see the poor, not only will you begin to see Jesus, you will also see yourself. Which will oftentimes lead to a confession and a need for us to be more poor in spirit. It's a part of the reason why we keep going to Uganda or Kentucky or Haiti. Why? Because we need to constantly be reminded of this fact, and this is something that we don't like. If we had been born in one of those places, especially Haiti or Uganda, you know what? The odds are that you would not be the success that you are today. Like 99.99%. We don't like that. We like to think about us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. This is, I've made this. And simply being there is incredibly humbling it's not easy. The truth is that working with the poor, with the poverty, with the stricken, is incredibly unsettling. And when you do so, you wrestle with things like fairness or unfairness, justice and injustice. But I don't think those things should ever be antithetical to our faith. I actually think that they should, though, unnerve it. It should offend us at times. It should transform us because it will divulge our inner thoughts. But it is only then that we can really begin to realize just how much we've begun to believe that God owes us. Only then, in that offense, we can all of a sudden remember that God's grace knows no bounds. So may we go to those boundaries. May we cross over them. And in so doing, might we be reminded that God's word is not just amazing, it is life-altering. 
May we not be distracted by the shape of the words, but always remember that God has come to reshape our very world for his glory and for his glory alone. Amen? Amen. Let us pray.